0: open with me to the book of James. I knew I'd get some pop heads there. (laughs) Book of James, chapter 5. Derek Thomas is a pastor and professor at Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, he, along with Christopher Ashe, are probably the go-to people when it comes to the book of Job. They've done a lot of study on it. They've uh, taught and preached it many times. In one of his lectures on Job, Derek Thomas helps us understand what Job must have been going through. He says, imagine you wake up on a clear, beautiful day in the year 2001. You make yourself a cup of coffee. You open the newspaper and you flip on the TV to get the morning news. You glance down at the TV and you see that a plane has flown into the North Tower of the World Trade Center and it's engulfed in flames. You're stunned because your brother works in that building. You call, you call, and you call him, and there's no answer. But you also have a sister who works in the South Tower, so you pick up the phone and call her, and you find out that she is frantic because she's looking out the window at the North Tower that's burning. You glance down at the TV just in time to see another plane fly into the South Tower. And the phone goes dead with your sister. As you dial and redial her number, you watch in horror as the North Tower crumbles into a plume of smoke and flame. You're beside yourself with grief knowing that you've probably lost two out of your three siblings you hold the phone in your hand and you're waiting you're waiting to call your sister who is a stewardess on flight 93 the plane that went down in Pennsylvania can you imagine losing your entire family again that sets the stage for the whole book of Job one day he lost everyone everything that's Job's experience now, it's not everyone's personal experience in this room, that kind of personal devastation. Some of you, maybe, some of you I know have gone through that type of pain and suffering. And God knows this. God knows what you have are And will go through. And that's why he gave us the book of Job. To help us in times like that. Look with me at James chapter 5. Starting in verse 7. James writes this. Be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord... It is capable of correcting us and of rebuking us and of training us and of giving us the insight into how to live righteously. And Lord, today we pray that you give us the insight into how to live steadfastly in this broken world. Through your dear son, Job, who went through so much, so well, for your glory. And to that end, we pray. Amen. Here, James uses Job as the prime example of patience in suffering. The prime example. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, James wrote this book, wrote the, this example. Consider the example of Job in his steadfastness because the Holy Spirit knew what the readers of the book of James were going to go through. He knew that they were scattered and that there was persecution coming. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Job wrote to encourage the early Christians to persevere, endure, be steadfast. Just like Job. He holds Job up. Be steadfast like Job. Be perseverant through difficulties like Job. Endure faithfully like Job. Now, if you've been with us the last several weeks, maybe you're coming under the impression that that Job doesn't sound like a good example. I mean, in chapter 2, we noted that he was in stunned silence. He sat for seven days, numb because of what he went through. In chapter 3, we saw that he sank down into the depths of depression. Perhaps outside of Gethsemane, the darkest chapter in all of Scripture. And if you read that chapter, you read a lot of things where you go, Ooh, careful, Job. Ooh. ooh. Then in chapters 6 and 7, Job displays his incredible anger towards his situation, towards his friends, towards God. If you read and reread those chapters, you hear, again, some things that make you uneasy. Then, two weeks ago, we looked at Job's despair. Born out of a sense of the arbitrariness he's feeling about God and his judgments. The frustration he's feeling at the silence of God. God, won't you just answer me? Now if we look at these reactions, you might be tempted to ask the question, how can James hold Job up as a paragon of virtue here? I mean, he's depressed. He's angry. He's, he's in despair. He's hopeless. You might even be tempted to think, this isn't how a Christian goes through suffering. This, is, this doesn't sound like a Christian. If you sat in church for any length of time, you hear just the opposite, isn't it? Where's the joy? doesn't even look like a believer. You might be tempted to think that, but you'd be wrong. What's impressive about Job and what Scripture highly, highly values in the example that we are supposed to follow here is honesty. Honesty. Job is honest about where he is. Job is honest about how he's feeling. He is transparent and vulnerable. He's not putting on a mask. He's saying, this is who I am. This is how I'm feeling. And it doesn't look pretty. He's not fake. And brothers and sisters, that's part, part of the contribution that Job gives us in going through suffering, in enduring through suffering. This honesty before God. Listen to some of the things that that Job says again. He said, "Let the day I was born, let me perish. Why did I not die at birth? I loathe my life. I will speak from the bitterness of my soul. When a scourge brings sudden death, God mocks the despair of the innocent. You despise the work of your hands, God. I would speak to the Almighty. Listen to the, to the brashness. I would speak to the Almighty and desire to argue my case to you. Job doesn't try to appear strong or brave Or put the veneer on. He's who he is. And he leans into that. He's honest and transparent about his pain. Even bordering and, by the way, crossing over sometimes into sin. Honesty and transparency is a really hard thing for us to do, isn't it? In fact, in the discovery notes, you'll find a question concerning that if you're in a discovery group. It's hard. Hiding and posturing is part of the human experience handed down to us from our father, Adam. We don't want God, let alone others, to know who we truly are. But that's what we see in Genesis 3 after they ate the forbidden fruit, right? God comes into the garden, giving them a chance to come to him. Where are you? And they hide. They think they can hide from God. And we do too. (laughs) We think we can hide from God. We think that we can bury all these these questions and our feelings down. And that God doesn't know them all we have to learn to bring our hearts to God because when we are transparent with God we experience a couple blessings like being brought into a deeper trust of God when you're honest with God you're brought into a deeper trust of God Psalm 92.1 says, I will save the Lord. He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. How many of you out there have ever read that and really prayed that and know that of your God? How do you develop that type of trust with God? One way that Job teaches us is to give something to someone and find that they are faithful with it. How do you develop trust? It's to give something to someone and find out that they are faithful with it. Now, if you're always hiding and posturing who you are from God, you'll never, ever experience true trust of God. You'll never understand Psalm 91. You'll never understand what it is for him to be your shield in your fortress, in your high tower. If you never are honest before God with who you are, it would be like if you never told your spouse how you're really feeling. You hide your heart from your spouse. They say, how you doing? You say, oh, just fine. And you're in deep angst. Always smiling when you're struggling. Never telling your feelings, your frustrations. If you did that, you would never develop a deep trust with your spouse. So, too, with God, if you never share your struggles. As one writer put it, Give God who you really are and prepare to be amazed. Have you ever given God who you really are? Job did. But also, secondly, you'd never gain a deep intimacy with God. You'd never gain a trust and you'd never gain a deep intimacy with Him either. Sharing your pain, your struggles, who you really are, where you really are in that moment develops not just trust, but deep intimacy with God. We see this in the scriptures, particularly in the Psalms of David, where he went through a lot in his life, and he just poured himself out. You know what's remarkable about David? Is that he did that. He wrote them down. He wrote his most intimate thoughts down. He put them to music, and they sang them. Talk about being like this. When he was in trouble or frustrated with God, he simply talked about it, wrote about it, and eventually sang about it. Mike Iaconelli wrote in Messy Spirituality Spirituality is not a formula, it's not a test, it's a relationship. Christianity is not about competency, it's about intimacy. Spirituality is not about perfection, it's about connection. The way of the spiritual life begins where we are now in the mess of our lives. Accepting the reality of our broken, flawed lives is the beginning of real Christianity. Not because the Christian life will remove our flaws... But because we let go of seeking perfection and instead seek God, the one who is present in the tangledness of our lives. Spirituality is not about fixing. It's about being present in the mess of our unfixedness. I love that. It's about God is present in the mess of our unfixedness. Brothers and sisters, we are all a mess. we really are why not be honest to God with that and honest with some people with that because for 31 chapters we've had a front row seat of Job's untangledness haven't we he's transparent and uh, truthful with God In so doing, he is encouraging us to do the same. Maybe maybe it's appropriate to take a chapter in Job and pray through that yourself. If you've never done this type of thing with God, Job is there to help you. Because Christianity is not about competency, it's about intimacy. It's not about perfection, but connection. And we, a bunch of us in this room, probably all of us to an extent, we have to understand that. We have to learn that. The Christianity is not about perfection. You know what that does? That creates a whole bunch of fake Christians. It's about connection. Connection with God. Connection with each other. Because the perfection has already been taken care of. Do you remember that from the gospel? It's already been taken care of. You don't need to be perfect. doesn't mean you don't strive for it. Of course, there's plenty of verses for that. But you don't need to fake it. Because there's somebody who became perfect for you in your place. And that is Jesus Christ. That's the reason that he... Struggled on your behalf, it says in scripture, struggled on your behalf through the temptations of sin. So that when he was on the cross, he could absorb your tangledness, your unfixedness, and he could give you his perfection, his righteousness. That's the transaction that happens when you become a real Christian. And part of the sanctification process is learning what that means and living that out. And, and, and when we understand that we are seen by God in the light of Christ, it truly frees you up to live your untangledness out the open, to live transparently, to live honestly. Because you really understand that you're justified. Christ has done that for you. Second lesson we learned from Job is the example of stick to stick Try to write that down without looking up. The King James in in, uh, James chapter 5 uses the word patience. Be have the patience of Job, and that has come into our vernacular. We use that idiom, oh, he has the patience of Job, she has the patience of Job. But other versions are more helpful. The ESV says steadfastness. I think the NIV says uh, perseverance, consider the perseverance of Job. The NAS, the endurance of Job. But my grandmother Dodie always used the word stick-to-it-ive. So there's a certain stick-to-it-iveness of Job that James is is lifting high. Consider the endurance, the steadfastness, the stick-to-it-iveness of Job. And that describes Job. He endured through incredible sufferings. We read 31 chapters, back and forth with his friends, complaining and his demands, his grappling with his grief, his anger, with his unfairness of his suffering, the frustrations under the silence of God, the crying out to God. But Job never leaves. That's a huge, major narrative of the book of Job. He never leaves. He doesn't turn his back on God. He might say things that that border on and go over into sin, but he never leaves. He never forsakes God. He never takes the advice of his wife, curse God and die. This very one flesh was saying, turn your back on God. How could God do something like this to you? And brothers and sisters, that's a real temptation for us as we go through this broken life. It's a real temptation. If you haven't already, I'm sure you will get to places in your life where you say, is it really worth it? I don't know. You'll hear this from your own hearts and you'll hear this from people who say they love you, maybe. You'll hear things in your own heart that sound like, how could God, who I've done so much for, who I've served so faithfully, do this to me? Heard that from one of my best friends who turned his back on the Lord. How could God how could the God you say is so loving and caring and sovereign? Let this happen to me. The famous Bible translator J.B. Phillips was five when his mother got cancer. She suffered terribly for 10 years and died when he was 15. 10 years of suffering. All through his childhood, all he did was watch his mother slowly waste away. He said of that time period, I gave up my religious faith entirely. For what use was prayer and talk of the love of God when I returned daily to this horrible caricature of a sprightly, witty mother whom I known and loved die? That's the temptation. And J.B. Phillips isn't alone. We have examples in Scripture of people who did this very same thing. In 2 Timothy 4, we have Demas. Demas, who was with Paul in his Roman imprisonment. And and Paul writes, Demas left me because of the love of the world. I don't know all that that means, but maybe he was looking at Paul over the weeks, over the months, and saying, you know what, this might happen to me. I'm not going there. He left. Hymeneus, Alexander, Philetus, same thing, left, turned their back, pitched God. These are people the Holy Spirit wa- Holy Spirit wanted us to know about, who didn't make it to the other side of the valley, so to speak. And they stand as warning posts for us. And we kid ourselves if we think that there will be never be a time in our life when we get there. We kid ourselves. We kid ourselves that we'll, there will never be a time when we say, is it really worth it? Or is this really happening to me? Or how could this happen to me? Or why would a good God allow this to happen to me? Or where's God when I really need Him? We hear that in the Psalms, don't we? Or if God is really good and really powerful, why doesn't He do something? You'll face this kind of intense suffering. And if you haven't already, when you do, Job helps to us to endure. I'm re-watching the Hobbit with Finnegan. And There's one scene where Gandalf and the the group gets to the edge of Mirkwood Forest. And Mirkwood Forest is a a dark and, and evil forest. But Gandalf says, there's one path that goes through the forest. It's small, but don't take a step off that path or you'll never find your way out. You can guess what happened There. But I think throughout Job, throughout the 42 chapters of Job, there is a thin path of faithfulness, a a trail of faithful breadcrumbs that he leaves for us to endure to the end. And I want to walk through a few of them with me. The first faithful cry is the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. You remember this from chapter 21, from chapter 1 verse 21. After he loses his whole family. He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. In other words, in suffering, we must remember God is sovereign. In suffering, we have to remember God is sovereign. We cannot sacrifice God's sovereignty on the altar of human reason. Throughout the book, Job is asking the question, why, why, why? You see, in our prideful humanity, we always want to make sense of our circumstances. And we demand it. Give me the reason. His friends aren't very helpful in that. We've seen that. They boil it all down to, Job, you must have done something pretty awful for this to happen to you we know that's not right. And sometimes our, in our pride we boil our suffering down to a false dichotomy. God is either good and not sovereign or He's sovereign but He can't be good. Because those things make sense to us. Because you can't be sovereign and good and allow this to happen to me. He wouldn't allow this type of suffering. He would stop it if he was sovereign. Since he doesn't, he must not be. Or if he is sovereign and placed this suffering in my life, he must not be good. But that's just prideful human reason. Scripture tells, put, tells us over and over again that God is both good and sovereign. Good and sovereign. Good and sovereign. Totally sovereign. And totally good. So how do we make, make sense of this? I think there's another breadcrumb on the path for us. In chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, he cries out, Blessed is the man whom God corrects, So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. You see, there's always a purpose for what God is doing in your suffering. There's always a purpose. French philosopher Simone Weil wrote this. The extreme greatness of Christianity. I love this, and this is from a pagan. The extreme greatness of Christianity lies in the fact that it does not seek a supernatural remedy for suffering, but a supernatural use of it. That's true. That's how God's sovereignty and goodness live together. This is a major theme throughout Scripture. I mean, you have Genesis 50 where God, what God meant for evil, what men meant for evil, God meant for good. You have James 1, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because it eventually leads to maturity. It's First Peter 1's trials prove the authentic, authenticity of your faith. It's Hebrews 12's enduring Hardship as discipline. Why? Because God only disciplines sons. He's encouraging your sonship. 2 Corinthians 12's thorn in the flesh. Why? So that Paul wouldn't be this prideful brat. And they all boil down to Romans 8.28, don't they? For we know that all things... God works for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This is how they all come together. There is good purpose in God's sovereign suffering, which brings us to the third faithful cry. Job 2.10, Job says, Shall we receive good from the Lord and not evil? We have to be humble in our sufferings like Job. Job. We have to be humble. It's so easy to lash out when we're in in pain, isn't it? So easy. I remember when I had my heart surgery, my dear wife, here I am in pain, and I would lash out at her. Why? She's caring for me. We lash out when we're in pain. At God, at friends, at spouses, at the unfairness of life. But it takes a great humility to see your suffering as a greater good. It takes a great humility to actually, in the midst of it, see it as a greater good. How do you do that, Pastor? Well, you ask some questions. You ask some questions in the midst of it if you don't, can't remember to ask questions, ask your spouse or a good friend, when you see me like this, remind me of these. What sin is God trying to mortify in my life? Through this suffering right now. What dross is he trying to extrude from me? What flesh... Is he trying to crucify? What part of my flesh? What large part of my flesh is God trying to wake me up? What blind spot do I have that God is trying to say, Blake, look over here? What idol is he trying to expose? Guys are going through this right now in discipleship. What idol is he trying to expose? Perhaps it's an idol of comfort and ease that God is getting at through suffering. Perhaps there's a sin of pleasure or pornography that he, he wants exposed. Perhaps he's trying to crucify your fleshly tendency towards gossip or greed. I mean, in a way, church discipline is is part of that hard suffering to get us to a place of repentance. Isn't it? We dislike it because of the great suffering that we go through. But radical surgery sometimes is needed to save a life. And that's sometimes what intense suffering is. It's radical surgery on your soul, on your flesh. I often repeat what Martin Lloyd-Jones said in discipleship and counseling. I think I just did this week. He said, God who has chosen you to holiness will make you holy if the preaching of the word does not do so. He has other means and methods. He may strike you down with an illness. He may ruin your business. God will make you holy because he has chosen you unto holiness. Hard words. Hard. That's hard. Another cry that helps us stay on the narrow path through Mirkwood is 1923. For I know that my Redeemer lives and at last he will stand upon the earth. You know how we make it to the other side? We remember that Christ is coming. John Piper just released his new book. I'm getting it. It's Come, Lord Jesus. It's all about how do we love the fact that Jesus is coming back. I think that would be very helpful for us in this room. Because sometimes your, your situation is so intense right now that the only th- hope you have is to look to the future. To realize that this world is broken, but it's not going to stay broken forever. To realize that you are a tangled mess, but you're not going to be tangled mess forever. Christ is coming back and there will be no tear and no pain and no sorrow. That's a good thought to meditate on. And that leads us to our final cry in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. As for me, I would seek God. And to God, I would commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number it goes back to Hebrews 12 what we just read keep your eyes on Christ seek him in the dark times second Timothy 4 Paul writes the time for my departure has come i have fought the good fight i have finished the race i have kept the faith Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award on me on that day. And not only me, but also all who have loved his appearing. Paul's encouraging us. Job is encouraging us to fight the good fight. To endure through suffering. To make it to the other side. Brothers and sisters, the goal of worldliness is to avoid suffering. The goal of worldliness is to avoid suffering. Not so for the Christian. Not so. We are to endure it. We are to expect it. And we're to endure it. For our good. And for his glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I pray for all in this room that you will give us the steadfastness of Job. That when we are in the difficulties of life, of which there are many, great and small. That you will help us to remember these breadcrumbs on that narrow path through Mirkwood that Job has given us. Thank you for him and for the life that he endured so that we may benefit these many, many thousands of years later. In Jesus' name, amen.